So this has been recorded on Thursday, the 20th of September, um, a few hours after I finished my VHS review, and I went on Amazon Prime, the Shudder channel, and I had a look for teeth, and it was not on there. So I am going to be reviewing American Psycho instead. Um, anyone who was looking forward to my review of teeth, I have to apologise I will see what I can do is maybe doing it as a special episode down the line. But for now, I'm going to be reviewing American Psycho. And I will actually say straight up, I love this movie. So it's going to be a different review. Because normally I watch movies and I do have an affection for. But would not critically praise in an analytical, uh, theoretical, textual way. Or subtextual, but American Psycho really enjoys it. It's going to be a different review, and I hope you enjoy it. And I know I'll enjoy it when I start recording it on Sunday. So, yeah. Here we go with a new episode and a slightly different change format. So, I will get going. Written by Brett Easton Ellis and published in 1991, American Psycho is a first-person-focused novel revolving around Patrick Bateman, a Manhattan-based serial killer on Wall Street. It's a book which Alison Keeley from The Observer noted would see academics revel in its transgressive and postmodern qualities, dealing with a lot of the ideas and its parts of books seem like filler, but getting you into the mindset of Patrick Bateman and also the strong sense of pop culture. Speaking Jeff Baker in 2010, Brett Easton Ellis noted Bateman was crazy the same way I was. This was clearly a personal story for Brett Easton Ellis, taking his internal frustrations and irritations with society and externalising them in an extreme, exaggerated way with sequences of rape, torture, mutilation, cannibalism and necrophilia that were drawn out for dramatic effect. It was a controversial book that Simon and Schuster refused publish due to aesthetic differences, as usual suspects pull it, you can see the aesthetic on wall, and was picked up by vintage books. Interesting, interesting, yeah, yeah, interesting, <laughs> this is podcast where I keep all the errors in. Feminist activist Gloria Steinem was opposed to violence against women prevailing in book. Interestingly, she is Christian Bell's stepmother. So there you go. It took nearly a decade to make it into a movie, and here we go with review. So this is going to be a different view this week. It's not going to be a recap, because to be honest, I don't think... One, I don't think you can necessarily gain an enjoyment for this movie via a recap. I You might be able to if it's a live one, but to condense it, the... A lot that happens and a lot of texts and subtexts, and I don't think that's really something I do without actually capturing movie in whole as a live recording. But obviously, I'm switching to live recordings being once a month, or you know, the really detailed ones being a bit longer than that. But I don't want dirt for this movie because also the live recaps I find to an extent are more about making fun of a movie and unless like for the really specific ones and I don't want to make fun of American Psycho because this is a goddamn great movie 
flat out. It's one of the best movies of 90... It's one of the best movies of the Zero Zeros, even, because it came out in 2000. Surprisingly great adaptation of a book. Really, really, really clever. Really good writing, really good directing. Amazing acting, which I'll go into in being this. So it's not going to be a straight recap. There are going to be parts, and I do recap in quite good detail... But general gist is going to be more a surmise of what I thought about the movie, my feelings towards it, some of the like, some of the direction and the cinematography I really enjoyed. And yeah, I mean, like, I I don't want to say anything bad about this. Like, I've been made clear I was originally going to do a review on Teeth, which would be much more amusingly focused. Lots of like jokes about um the Avengers and super movies in general, but this, I I, I don't really have any jokes. I thought it's great. And it's the joy of this podcast. I always do something slightly different every week, so today's going to be no exception. The first thing you'll note about American Psycho is it's playing with the idea of truth versus perception. These characters, the way they talk, the way they act, the way they interact even, you don't get the impression that anyone's listening to anything that anyone is just saying. You know, it's like they, they're all existing their own little bubble, as as exemplified by the fact that they talk at one point about one character says, "Oh man, the seats are attacking the Iraqis in Saudi Arabia," and it's such a shockingly bad representation of what was actually going on at the time. It's obviously set in the eighties. Such a poor mis, such complete misunderstanding of the actual nature of that conflict of conflict in Saudi Arabia. And all conflicts going on at time. Now, it just shows these characters don't really do anything other than have a brief glance at newspapers and come up with a take that's not based on anything but reality. It's further put across by the anti-Semitism someone makes at the table, which Patrick Bateman calls them on. But it's clear he doesn't really understand why, what he's talking about. He's just getting offended for the sake of being offended. But... Even saying that, not so much Fend is laughing at the idea. He's making jokes, he's throwing toothpicks, he's he's laughing, actually laughing at it. So immediately we get a sense of this being a detached critique of material, materialism and vanity. And that's great, because obviously this is a commercial movie. We're not going to make any assumptions about that. It might be more rooted in an independent mindset, but go is still so it's, it's Go with Steve, get people to go and see the movie and enjoy it. And it is, in many ways, an enjoyable movie. More in verge of the old Kubrick ones, where it's a great movie. Enjoyment's the wrong word, even. I, less enjoyment, although there are some funny parts, less enjoyment, more you're watching a really, really great Martin Scorsese-style The Verge into a character's life. This one's, I, I think it does judge Patrick a bit, but you have to think about whether it's judging him or whether it's going down mindset of this isn't real, so this is just one man's perspective breakdown, I guess. It could go either way. Anyway, Patrick Bateman is both the American dream and American nightmare, because on surface, he is the American dream. He's a guy who's in great shape. You know, Kate takes care of him safe. You're assuming he works hard and he's rich. So, like, you know, he's an example of what you can get in America if you assert yourself. But at the same time, he's the American nightmare because 
he's either having a breakdown and really struggling with the demands of job, which is a rousing indictment of Wall Street, or he's actually a serial killer and he's actually killing people, in which case he is the dark side of America, as really progressed by Fatner. I love the scenes we get in his like business in a place where it's Pierce and Pierce and love scenes getting clubs and things like that. A really matter of fact they shot. They're not they're not particularly grandeur. Um they just like this is what it is, this is the place he works and we're not gonna make big deal out of it. It's just point it's like a critique of the eighties sleaze because in the eighties they had a lot of movies like Cocktail with bright colours and bright lights and there meant to be critiques of the businesses in parent, but they weren't because they're always pointing out how great they were to work in. And this seems to be opposite. It's pointing out how shit Wall Street was in the 80s and how shit it is today. There's no end to these scenes on purpose. And then flip side is all scenes outside, like scenes in the sort of slum belly of his kitchen and things like that, they're shot for a lot of energy, like a real sense of, action I guess but all sense of things happening and how this earth and New York and all of that is a lot more interesting when you veer away from the corporate aspect of it I guess interesting might be the wrong word but yeah it's just it's just fascinating the way they shoot those scenes with a lot of verve and a lot of energy and then the corporate scenes are shot I, I think it's intentional you know I think it's a directing choice it's just interesting to think about. So, we also get into movies, love scenes of characters being mistaken for other characters, which is great foreshadowing, because it's done so subtly. It's just, oh, oh, sorry, I thought I was looking for Harold Holberbart, for example. Oh, no, you're Patrick Bateman. Hey, are you steammate Cecilia? No, I'm going out with Evelyn. Oh, Evelyn, she's got a great ass. People calling Patrick Bateman a loser to calling Patrick Bateman a loser, but not to his face. They're saying things like, Patrick Bateman, oh, that dork. While they're talking Patrick Bateman, it's just they, they either know and they're mocking him or they don't generally don't know it's him. So it's fascinating. We get a lot of static matter-of-fact shots, which encompass a wide frame, mixing pristine business and young Bell of New York's I've put across. And just, like, it's just fascinating... I keep saying that word. The whole movie really intrigues me because it's one of those great movies where Patrick Bateman is a character who doesn't have a character arc. His cat, or I suppose if he does have a character arc, his character arc is realising that there's no, no point to anything. You know, the earth is doomed. It's that Watchmen mindset that Doc Manhattan gets over by the end of the movie. In fact, Patrick Bateman and Doc Manhattan had chat, maybe. Maybe Patrick Bateman would start getting you know, start to enjoy life again. But, no, he doesn't. Patrick Bateman's inability to enjoy anything is a really interesting character. No. And that's obviously coming from a book. But it's translated perfectly to a movie whereby his monologue and his narration just pose it that there's nothing there. Literally nothing there. His narration, narration is meant to convey character it's meant to convey, convey true character. So that when you see a character doing something, like, for example, if you watch a movie and character's chopping wood, 
you assume that they chop wood and they're happy to chop wood, but narration can really reveal what character's truly thinking beyond that. It's the action, but the actual... It's the internalisation. With Patrick Bateman's internalisation, it's just his daily routine, for the most part. And his monologues... The monologues in this movie are the best pop pop culture monologues I've ever seen and ever heard. You see, a lot of movies, they just say pop culture stuff, just say pop culture stuff. You know, and it's it's not meant to be thought about on a deeper critical level. Occasionally movies, you'll get a Tarantino movie, for example, where the characters will deliver a monologue, like um, in True Romance, the famous monologue from Dennis Hopper's character. I won't go into spoilers, but it's not just a monologue for the sake of monologue. It's a monologue for a specific purpose. Or even something like, oh Christ, I think. A movie where it's popcorn monologue, which has relation to the story. I guess, um, oh, I can't remember, that Tarantino, the Tarantino martial arts movie where um, the main villain delivers a monologue about Superman in the end. And it's great because the monologue has actually got a thematic point. It's not just saying it just sound clever. In this movie, they go, the opposite, they go to the other extreme and it's a really good stream of... The monologues mean nothing, but that's the point. That Patrick Bateman is trying to communicate with people and try and put across ideas, but he's got nothing. He knows nothing in. So he just recites comments about music and he doesn't understand. To people who are increasingly bored, which beats and beats. In the first one with Paul Allen, when he's talking about healers and news, he clearly doesn't get the song. You know, but the whole point for that is he's distracting Paul Allen. So Paul Allen doesn't suspect he's about to be murdered. And actually, it's interesting about Paul Allen. One thing I like, the other thing I read, well, there's a lot I love about this movie, but it's one part in particular that I'm really a fan of. It's the fact that the impression you get more times you watch this is that Paul Allen is a murderer in his own right. Like, he gives off that vibe. He's clearly the Patrick Bateman of another movie going on at the same time. Just fascinating, which is really. Fa- I know you use that word a lot, but that's really fascinating because the idea that you can have characters having it, and this is true of the whole movie like the fact that Lewis, the um, one of people Patrick Bateman works with, who there's seen later on in the movie where Patrick tries to murder Lewis for having bad business card than him, and Lewis construes it as a romantic gesture. So he admits that he's in love with Patrick, which freaks Patrick out which leads Patrick to flee your bathroom. Now, in most movies, you wouldn't get the sense that Lewis had his own life. You know, you, he's just service block contrivance. But this flip that they do creates an even better idea of Lewis's character, of Patrick, of the universe that they inhabit, of the company they both work for. While at the same time, it's, it's really, really, really cool because... Clearly, Lewis is not just a prop for Patrick's story, but he has his own sad story of being someone who works in that business in the 80s, who wants to come out of the closet but can't, who thinks he's found an opportunity to, but realises that he hasn't. While at the same time, we get Lewis's wife, Courtney, who, and I'm just going to say for record, Samantha Mathis is an insane 
insanely good actress. She's been a good actress for a long time. And it's lovely to see a move like this where you get that real reminder. It's a bit like Jennifer Jason Lee in The Hateful Eight where like you get that that here and you're like, Wow, that that person can act, you know, and I really think she didn't get enough brains for this movie because she does the same thing. Her character Courtney has an entire story that's clearly going on in the background of this movie. And there's a part where she actually says she's um, essentially Patrick's Lewis's wife, fiance even, and Patrick's mistress, who's on Livium all the time. And you, she's clearly a character in the movie we're meant to emphasize with the most because she's a genuinely harmless. She's a victim. She's a victim of this horrible life of a loveless relationship with Lewis, who's clearly in closet. And she's with Patrick, but she's in Livium days most of the time. And there's one part in the movie where she just admits that all she wants is two two kids. And then just after that, Patrick sleeps with her for the last time. She asks if he can call him for Easter. He says, maybe. And she says, well, if I don't see you before Easter, if, you don't, if I don't see you before Easter, have a good one. So... Clearly, the implication is that she commits suicide and Patrick doesn't care. And Lewis doesn't care. And it's amazing right? I know it's based on books, so a lot of it's taken from a book, but it's amazing writing and acting. Living, breathing characters. After so many months, after so many weeks even, of watching movies on Shudder, and like I love I loved most of them, I enjoyed them. This is like a breath of fresh air. This is genuinely an exceptional movie. In every possible regard. The the writing, the acting, the humour, the darkness. The incredible foreshadowing. Like Patrick in background of a scene watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre doing push-ups. Doing them, yeah, exercises. So it's just in background. She's a little detail, not meant to wear upon. And then at the end of the movie, you realise that Patrick's obsession with pop culture leads him to be inspired by that to, after he's murdered an old friend, to chase down Christy, and I'll, I'll go and detail on Christy in a bit, down the corridor, while Patrick's naked, the chainsaw swing everywhere, and then murder her with chainsaw. And it's, it's a terrifying scene to go from the kind of humorous bit before that where he's describing Whitney Houston and his friend Elizabeth and Christy and mocking him for liking Whitney Houston to the off-screen murder of Elizabeth where you just catch her screams and, oh, it's just terrifying. It's just horrifying. And then chasing Christy down and taking her out of Chainsaw because immediately, you're, if you go back to watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the screen earlier while Patrick's exercising, think, is it real? Is he that obsessed with pop culture and that he's actually carrying out, he's actually inspired by it? Or is his mind just creating this idea that that's what he's doing? Like, you, the movie's vague in that part. But in a good way, ambiguous. Vague's the wrong word. Ambiguous is the right word. And it, it really goes to show how you, the idea that you can make genuinely gripping movies in a horror setting because in some ways this isn't horror moving other ways it is because it's dealing with satirical parodic concepts but it's also very 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 unnerving to watch 
And it's always clear again that Patrick Bateman doesn't understand the material, the pop culture material he's referencing, but Christian Bell gets the movie. And one thing that I read about this movie was they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio in it. And hey, Leo can act. Like, seriously, I don't think I'm going to be reviewing many movies on this Shudder app that he's been in because I don't think he's been in many horror movies, but he can seriously act. But Christian Bell commits to this. And you can see why. You can see why you got Ralph Batman off this, like, because the commitment he puts this movie, like, he he's, oh, he's such a good actor, and it's shame that he became a bit of a, a joke because of his rank on Terminal Salvation set, because he's seriously one of the best actors that we have, and it's really nice to see one of his earlier roles and seeing that he was so committed. There's a scene where, and also he has really good sense of humor because. The first scene with the um, two prostitutes, he's, while they're getting down business, he's flexing the mirror, he's making faces, he's laughing. And it's so perfectly played, because it points out that Patrick is a vain, sophist scumbag, which he is. And he does a great job of playing that, while also putting across that Patrick doesn't have any enjoyment from sex. He has no enjoyment from it. He is dispa- as dispassionate towards the act of sets as the waiter at the start of the movie is to describing food. Like, there's no joy in these people's lives. And that's, again, that's something that is worth thinking about. Patrick has nothing in his life that excites him. Not even... Not even killing people. That doesn't even excite him. Like, he gets no satisfaction from it. No feeling of safe worth from it. He doesn't achieve anything from it. He just does it because he can do it. It's the entitlement of rich, as we've seen this year, in all so many ways, where rich feel like they can do anything. Which goes back to a scene in the movie where he's talking to a homeless man with a dog. And Patrick's saying to him, he's being nasty to him and saying, you lose uh, what you do, you lost your job. And then offers him hope just to stab him in the chest and then stamp on his dog. And it's the first time in the movie, we get a lot of sense before that of like how messed up Patrick Bateman is. That's really the first time where he's just cruel to be cruel. There's no reason that he should do that. He should murder that homeless guy. Like, Paul Allen... As disgusting as that is, you know, in Patrick's warped mind, he's justified in doing that. But that homeless guy, to taunt him with your prospect hope and then kill him is the point where, if it actually happened, Patrick's gone past the point of no return. I was going to do um, this episode in terms of a hero's journey, but I decided not to because you can't even joke about Patrick being a hero. He's one of the nastiest characters in the history of Sigma. Because even if he's just thinking about what he's doing, about these things he's doing, he's just an awful, awful human being. To even think about doing that stuff is just... Uh... And going back to the point of all characters are very fleshed out, we get Jane, his receptionist who has a crush on him. And what I love about this movie is in a lot of other movies, another thing I love about this movie even, in a lot of other movies she would be the whimpering violet, you know. 
But in this movie, she's, she's, you know, she's got urgency. She's got agency. She clearly has a thing for Patrick and clearly wants to come across as, like, trying to please him. But when they finally get to his um, his flat and they're talking and you get a sense that she's been involved with married men, unavailable married men a lot and that she's been hurt a lot, you start thinking, this is not a victim, per se. This is someone who, when she sees something she wants, she goes for it, and damn the consequences. As proven in the end, where she just, after Patrick calls her, she just immediately goes to his diary and starts reading it, and freaking out over all the lewd images of women, of females being attacked and mutilated and whatnot. And it's it's fast. It's really interesting to watch. I know a lot of people say the word interesting and don't mean it, but I really like this movie flat because I feel like they're not just having characters be one thing. Like they, okay, some some Patrick's friends, but they're extensions of the like place he lives in, and you're also morons. But even then, they get stories like. Bryce, played by Justin Theroux, at one point snaps at a guy in a bathroom stall, in bathroom stall opposite for telling him to shut up because they're trying to do drugs. But then when Patrick calms him down, he says, sorry, steroids. So there you get a sense that these people exist beyond Patrick's understanding of them. Like, you know, it's, it's just oh, so good. And then it ties back to a lot of my find about this movie that's really unsettling isn't necessarily showing on camera there's the scene where after he's slept with the two first two prostitutes he goes to a drawer and starts pulling out a wire hanger and a chisel I think yeah a wire hanger and chisel and next thing you know the um, two prostitutes are leaving and they've all been bussed up and Patrick meets up one of them later on named Christy, and she says, in most matter-of-fact way, I had to go to the emergency room last time. I might need surgery. And this is Mark of Great Movie, where we're being told... That, in theory, we're being told that by a dialogue, but at the same time, we're being shown that there's a lot... These people exist, their lives exist off-camera, they don't just stop and react to Patrick's presence. Even if he's imagining a lot of this, the impression that we get is clear that this is not just... This is Patrick's story and via his focus, but there's a lot going on in the background that he's responsible for. Just a very clever way of writing. And last thing I want to say is, before I, I do my bonus thing, which I'll talk about in a minute, Last thing I want to say is that I'm impressed that the chemistry between Reese Witherspoon and Christian Bell is not only non-existent, but you generally get the vibe that Patrick Bateman hates Evelyn, and she's oblivious to her. And it must take them so much work, because usually in movies like this, two characters like that have cracking chemistry. They can't help it. They've really worked hard to be the least chemistry relationship in any Hollywood movie I've seen in a long time. So, I mean, I I think down the line I might do a longer recap of American Psycho, but it's just... I, I, the gist is, it's a great movie. Really good. Like, you should watch it. If you haven't watched it already, you should watch it. Because it's just... 
Oh, so good. I mean, I hope you've wa you have watched it already, because I've spoiled a lot about this. Um, and if I have in your sport, I apologise, but such a good movie. And especially in this day and age, like, oh, so refreshing to see it genuinely. So very tired, long week. A very, very, very good horror movie. Starring such big name actors. Because you don't necessarily have that, like, there's, there's a lot of Rob De Niro ones, like um, that one he did for Cillian Murphy, which wasn't very good. So he's like the bigger Hollywood naming horror movie, worse it usually is. I mean, Patrick Wilson and Vera Famigla seem to do okay in the um, Conjuring ones, but I think that's because they are names, but they're not gi gigantic names, if that makes any sense. You can believe them as characters. So that's... Another episode of Friday Night Shudder done. It, not as long as last week's, um, but last week was a very... I had a lot to talk about with VHS3, and this movie I just thought was great. And... Yeah, very good. Very, very much recommended, and I hope you enjoy, enjoy this episode. And I'm back in week's time with The Love Witch, which... <laughs> the Love Witch Witch... <laughs> Trust me, you'll enjoy that review. I have a lot to say about Love Witch. But for now, this has been Friday Night Shudder. And remember, life is beautiful. So this is a tad last minute. I'm recording this on the 20th, Tuesday 25th of September after I recorded the main episode. And the reason I'm calling this little adenum is because I wasn't terribly happy with the podcast. And I thought I'd add a few little bits to it to sort of get running time up a bit, but also for a bit of levity. And this first bonus section is re recommended to us by the Now We're Talking podcast. If you don't know, Now We're Talking podcast is a new podcast where three men have reviewed the entire UK series of Now That's Why on Music. It's a very good podcast, available on soundcloud.com, Now We're Talking podcast, and it's really good. I have recommend it. Also on Twitter, now we're talking podcast, NWT-podcast on Twitter. Really good, highly recommended. And they actually mentioned to me when I was talk discussing this view on Twitter that there was a section dealing with healers and news in the book. And I thought, why not do something different and read that section? So without any further ado, here we go. Chapter, I don't know what chapter it is, starts on page 188. Huey Lewis and News. Huey Lewis and the News burst out of San Francisco onto the national music scene at the beginning of the decade with their safe title rock-pop album released by Chris Alasis. Though they didn't really come into their own commercially or artistically until their 1983 smash sports. Though their roots were visible, blues, Memphis, soul country on Huey Lewis and the News, they seemed a little too well in cashing on late 70s, early 80s taste for New Wave and the album, though it's still a smashing debut, seems a little too stark, too punk. Examples of this being drumming on first single, Some of My Lies Are True, sooner or later, and fake hand claps on Don't Make Me Do It, as well as the organ on Taking A Walk. Even though it's a little bit strained, their peppy boy wants to give lyrics, and the energy of which Lewis, as a lead singer in all songs, were refreshing. Having great lead guitarists like Chris Hayes, who also shares vocals, doesn't hurt either. Hayes solos as original unrehearsed ending rock, yet keyboardist Sean Hopper seemed too intent on playing organ a little too mechanically, though his piano playing on the second half of the album gets better. 
and B. Gibson's drumming is too muted to have much impact. Their songwriting also didn't mature until much later, though many of catchy songs that hints of longing and regret and dread stop drawing is one example. Those boys hail from San Francisco and they share some similarities with their Southern California counterparts, the Beach Boys, gorgeous harmonies, sophisticated vocalising, beautiful melodies, even posed with surfboard on cover of their debut album. They also carry with them some of the bleakness and nihilism of the thankfully now forgotten punk rock scene of Los Angeles at the time. Talk about your angry young men. Listen here on Who Cares? Stop trying. Don't even tell me that you love me. Trouble in paradise, the title set all. Here hits his notes like an embittered survivor. And band often sounds as angry as performance like Clash or Billy Joe or Blondie. Because everyone knows Blondie is a very angry singer. Back to the book. No one should forget that we have Avis Costello thanked for discovering Huey in the first place. Huey played harmonica in Costello's second record, The Thing Vapid, My Aim Was You. Lewis is some of Costello's supposed bitterness, though he has more bitter, single sense of humour. Avis might think the intellectual wordplaying, Avis might think the intellectual wordplaying's importance having good time, having one's cynicism tempered by good spirits. But I wonder what he thinks about Lewis and so many more records than he. I don't think that's true more. Things looked up for hearing boys on second album, 1982's Picture This, which you all did two semi-hits, Working for a Living and Do You Believe in Love. In fact, that this coincided with the advent of video, as one made for both songs, undoubtedly hit sales. The sound, though, still tinged with new wave trappings, seemed more <laughs> roots rock than previous album, which might have something to do with the fact that Bob Clear Mountain missed the record, or that he was in the news, took over. Uh, the producing reigns. Their songwriting grew more sophisticated and group wasn't afraid to quietly explore other genres, notably reggae, tell her a little lie, and ballads, hope you love me, let you say it, and is it me, question mark. But for, but, but for all its powder pop glory, the sound and band seemed gratefully less rebellious, less anger on this record. For those, the white, blue-collar bitterness of working for a living seems like an outtake from the earlier album. They seem more concerned personal relationships. Four of the album's ten songs have words loving their title, rather than strutting round as young nihilists. And the mellow good times feel of record is surprising in Fetch's change. Sorry for a second. You can we never you can never call Hugh Lewis and News Young Nihilist. That is fucking ridiculous. Patrick Bateman, you are a madman. The, the band is playing better than it last did, and Tower of Power horns <laughs> give the record a more open, warmer sound. The album hits its peak with the back-to-back one-two punch of Working for a Living and Do You Believe in Love, no question mark, which is best song on the album, and essentially about a singer asking a gay he's never met, a gay he's met while looking for someone to meet if she believes in love. What does that even mean? The fact that the song never rivets up... Rivets up. <laughs> The fact that the song never resolves the question, we never find out what Gay says, gives it an added complexity that wasn't apparent on group's debut. Also on Do You Believe in Love is to fit Also on Do You Believe in Love, no question mark, is a terrific sat solo by Johnny Collar. A guy gets Clarence Clemens a run for his money, who like Chris Hayes on lead guitar and Sean Hopper on keyboards, has by now become an invaluable asset to band. The sat solo on ballad, Is It Me question mark, is even stronger. Huey's voice sounds more searching, less raspy, yet plaintive, especially on The Only One, which is a touching song about what happens to our mentors and where they end up. Big Gibson's drumming is especially vital to this track. 
though the album should have ended on that powerful note, it ends instead with burst, 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 a throwaway blues number that doesn't make much sense compared to what preceded it, but in its own jokey way, it amuses and Tower of Power Horns on some form. Jesus fucking Christ, does this stop for a second? There are no such mistakes made on the band's third album, Fluence Masterpiece, Sports Chris Alexis. Every song has potential to be a huge hit, and most of them were. It makes... It made the band rock and roll icons. It really didn't. Gone totally is the bad boy image and the new frat guy sweetness takes over. Even have a chance to say arse in one song and juice bleep instead. Oh my god, that's hardcore. The whole album's a clear, crisp sounding new sheen of consummate professionalism that gives the songs on the album a big boost and wacky original videos make the same record. Heart and soul, the heart of rock and roll. If this is it, bad is bad. I want a new drug. I want all of those things. Made them superstars on MTV. Produced by the band, Sports opens with what would probably become their signature song, Heart of Rock and Roll. It did not become their signature song. <laughs> Heart of Rock and Roll, a loving ode to rock and roll all over the United States. Followed by Heart and Soul, their first big single, which is a trademark Lewis song, though it's written by outsiders Michael Chapman and Nick and Ching, which means it cannot be a trademark Lewis song. And tune that firmly forever established them as Premier Rock Band in Country from the 1980s. It did not. That's not true. If lyrics aren't quite up and par of other songs, they're really not. Most of them are more than serviceable, and the whole thing's a joint enterprise battle mistake one night stands are. A message the earlier, rowdier hero you have never made. Bad is Bad, written solely by Lewis, is bluesiest song band has recorded up to this point, and mine, sorry, Mauro Kipolina's bass playing gets shine on it, but it's Rehuri's harmonica solos that giving edge. I Want New Drug, with its killer guitar riff, cuts of Chris Hayes, is the album's centerpiece. Not only is it the greatest anti-drug song ever written, that's an oxymoron, surely. It's also a personal statement about how, about how band is growing up, shut off bad boy image and learn become more adult. Hayes so long it is incredible, and drum machine used but not credited, gives not only I Want New Drug, most of the album more consistent backbeat than any of the previous albums, even though B Gives is still waking present. The rest of the album whiz is by Flawless. <laughs> Fuck off. Side 2 opens with the most serious statement yet. Walking on thing line. No one, not even Bruce Springsteen's written this devastatingly about black Vietnam fighting modern society. This song though written by outsiders shows the social awareness that's new to band and proven to anyone, proved to anyone who's ever doubted that band apart from blues foreground, background had a heart. And getting finally found home, the band proclaims its newfound sophistication for this pie on growing up. And though at the same time it's about shedding their rebel image, it's about how they found themselves in passion and the danger of rock and roll. Fucking Jesus. In fact, the song works on so many levels, it's almost too complex for the album to carry, that it never loses its beat and still showing hoppers ringing keyboards, which make it danceable. If this is it, it's still the album. Shit, if this fuck. Um, if this is it, it's the album's one ballad. But it's not downbeat. It's a plea for love and telling enough love if they want to carry on with the relationship. And when Hugh sings it, arguably the most superb vocal on the album, it becomes instilled with hope. Again, this song, as with the rest of the album, isn't about chasing or long after it is, it's about dealing for relationships. Crap Me Up is the album's only hint of throwback to the band's new wave days. It's minor but amusing, though it's ant drinking, ant drug, bro growing up statement isn't. I think it's pretty amusing. It's a lovely ending. Fucking hell. How long is this chapter? And there's a lovely ending to an all-gether remarkable album. Band does a version of Honky Tonk Blues. Another song written by someone not in band named Hank Williams. Gee, we're sensing pattern here. Even though it's a very different type of song, you can feel its presence throughout the rest of the album. For its professional scene, the album's the integrity of Honky Tonk Blues. 
aside, during this period, he also two songs from the movie Back to the Future, which both went number one, Power of Love and Back in Time. They're like for extras, not footnotes, and what's been shaping up into legendary. They're not extras! That's all they're fucking remembered for! They're not extras! They're not footnotes! They're, they're the bands! What the band's remembered for? Patrick Bateman, you fucking moron! Jesus Christ, you fucking idiot! Fucking Bateman, man. Jesus Christ. The fuck is wrong with this guy? Okay, calm. What to say to sports dissenters in the long run? Question mark. Nine million people can't be wrong. They clearly can, and they were. Four, four is in F-O-R-E. Exclamation mark. Chris Alice's 1986. Essentially a continuation of sports album, but with an even more professional scene. Is this a record where guys don't need proof they've grown up and that they've set the rock and roll? Because in three years transition between sport and sports and four, they already had. In fact, three of them wearing suits on cover record. Oh, wow, that explains so much. Opens with Blaze of Fire, Jacob's Ladder, which is essentially a song about struggle and overcome compromise. A fitting reminder of what he... A fitting mind of what hearing news represents, and with the exception of Hip B Square, it's the best song on the album. Though it wasn't written by anyone in the band, no shit. This followed by sweetly good natured, sweet, sweetly good matured, stuck with you, a lightweight pay on relationships and marriage. In fact, most of love songs on the album about sustained relationships, unlike the early albums, where concerns were either about lust and off gaze and not getting them or getting burned in the process. On four, songs are about guys that are in control, who have gears, and now have to deal with them. It's new dimension in news, gives the record an added oomph, and they seem more content and satisfied, less urgent, and this makes for the most pleasingly crafted record date. But also, for every doing it all, doing it all for my baby, a delightful ode about monogamy and satisfaction. There's a barn banning? Barn? What the fuck? Barn banning? Barn banging, okay, I'm going to assume that's meant to be barn burning, okay? There's a barn burning blue, how barn banging blue scorcher does not make any fucking sense. I'm assuming barn burning blue scorcher, number like whole lot of loving, inside one or on CD song number five, ends with masterpiece hip be square. Finally, which ironically is accompanied by band's own bad video, that's not irony. The key song on four smash mark, which is a rocking open conformity, so catchy most people probably didn't even listen to the lines. With Chris Hayes blasting guitar and terrific keyboard playing, who cares? Question mark. It's not just about pledges conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about bandit social what I'm not quite sure, no shit. Second part four fucking chapter. Jesus three pages and I feel like I'm out of breath already. There's only thirteen pages of there's only like 23 pages of fucking book left. Jesus, if second part four doesn't have the intensity of first, there are some real gems that are actually quite complicated. I know what I like is song that fucking, is song that Huey would never have sung six years back. A blunt decoration of independence, while carefully placed, I never walk alone, which follows, actually compliments the song, explains it in broad terms, also has great order and solo, except for Hippie Square's huge strongest vocals. Forest for the Trees is an upbeat anti-suicide trat. Track? I, I don't think it's a trat. Track is an upbeat anti-suicide track, and Dirt's type might seem like cliche, it is. Here in Band of Web, energizing cliches and making them originals highly their own. No, they don't. The nifty acapella naturally evokes an instant time while showcasing the band's vocal harmonies. If you didn't know better, you'd think it was Beach Boys coming out of your CD. No, you were not! You would never think 
Hearing this in the news and nothing like the Beach Boys, and even if it's essentially a throwaway, a trifle of sorts, the album ends on a majestic note with simple as that, a blue-collar ballad that sounds not a note of resonation, one of hope and its complex message. It wasn't written by anyone who banned no fucking shit of survival leads the way to the next album, Small Way, where they take on global issues. Four might not be masterpiece sports is what could be, but it seems... Four might not be masterpiece... Fuck. Four might not be masterpiece sports is what could be, question mark. But in its own way, it's just as satisfying and mellower, gentler here of 86. It's just happening. End this chapter! Fucking Jesus Christ. Small way, Chris Alice's 1988's most ambitious, artistically satisfying record yet, produced by Hugh Lewis and News. The angry young man's definitely, <laughs> very angry, definitely being placed by a smoothly professional musician, even though he has only really mastered one instrument. He hasn't mastered anything. The harmonica, its majestic Dylan-esque sounds give small way grandeur a few artists have reached. Oh my God. It's an obvious transition in their first album that tries to make thematic sense. In fact, who takes on one of the biggest subjects of all, the importance of global communication? No wonder four out of the album's ten songs have word weird in the title, and that for the first time there's not one, only one but three instruments. I'm sorry, you should not be boasting that your album has three instruments. That should be fucking default. The CD gets off to a rousing start with the Lewis Hayes Pen Small Weird Part 1. Jesus Christ which along with its message of harmony is blistering solo by Hayes at centre. In old Antones, one can catch the Sudeco influences. The fuck does Sudeco mean? The band's picked up on touring around country and gives it a Cajun flavour and is utterly unique. What is he ta- What is Bateman talking about? I know this is meant to be his innermost thoughts. What the fuck is he talking about? This is worse than Wikipedia. Bruce Horn, oh fuck, Bruce Hornsby plays the accordion one fling. Lyrics give you a sense of true Bayou spirit. Bayou spirit. Again on the hit single Perfect with the Tower of Power Horns. What the Tower of Power Horns? What the fuck is that supposed to mean? A used to extraordinary effect. It's also best cut on the album, written by Alex Cole, who isn't in band. Again, no shit that the only good songs are written by people who aren't in the band. And it ties up the album... It ties up all the album's themes about accepting the imperfections of weird, but still learning and keep on dreaming of living in perfect way. Though the song is fast-paced pop, it's still moving in terms of its intentions and band plays splendidly on it. I don't know what that means. Oddly, this is followed by two instruments, the eerie African-influenced reggae dance track. Sorry, oddly, this is followed by two instrumentals, the eerie African-influenced reggae dance track Bobo Tempo and second part of Small Weird. Just because these tunes are wordless doesn't mean global message of communication is lost. It doesn't seem like Phil or Paddy because of the implications of their thematic reprise. Bands get show off its improvisational skills of words. How is it communicating a global message of communication if there's no lyrics? What the ever-loving fuck? Jesus. Side 2 opens smashingly with Walking With Kid. First two song to acknowledge the responsibilities of fatherhood. His voice sounds mature and even though we as listeners don't find out until the last line that Kid, who assume his buddy is actually his son, why would we assume it's his buddy? Fucking idiot. Maturity in his voice tips us off in his heart. Well, it doesn't, clearly, because we don't know who the fucking kid in the song is. We don't know it's his son and his voice doesn't tip us off if we don't find out at last line that's his son. 
The maturity, fuck, the maturity in his voice tips us off. It's hard believing that man who won't sing hard song in some of my lives are true singing this. This is in italics. The album's big ballad, Wave to Me, is a dreamy pair of a song. And though it's about sticking together in a relationship, it always makes losing China and Alaska and Dempsey. No, it fucking doesn't. Carrying on, the album's small weight theme and band sounds really good on it. Bet Be True is also a bit of a ballad, but it's not a dreamy pair and its lyrics aren't really about sticking together in a relationship, nor does it make illusions China or Alaska and band sounds really good on it. Give me keys and I'll drive you crazy. It's good time to lose rocker about what is question mark driving around incorporating the album theme much more playful way than previous songs on the album did. And though Larry Crip might seem impoverished, it's still a sign that New Sirius Lewis, that he artist, hasn't totally lost his frisky sense of fear. He never had one! The album ends with slamming, which is no words in just love horns that, quite frankly, if turned up really loud, give you a fucking big headache. Even make you feel a little sick, though it might sound different on an album or a concept, I wouldn't know about that. Anyway, itself, something wicked mean that lasted for days and cannot dance it very well. I'm fucking headache from this. I have a headache from reading this shit. Oh my god. How how can someone do an audio reading for this entire book? And I'm not mocking Brett Easton Ellis. You're very good right, mate. Clearly good. How would you read this entire book in one sitting? You cannot do it. You can't do it. Can't do it. Oh god, I'm sensitive up to have to do that at some point, aren't I? It took something like 100 people to put small words together, count all the extra musicians, drum technicians, accountants, lawyers, who are all fant. But this actually has to see these theme of commuting, it doesn't clutter the record. It makes it more joyous experience. With this seeding, four previous ones behind it, who lives in the news, proving if this is really a small word, then these guys are the best American band of the 80s on this or any other continent. And it has with it, Hewlett, a vocalist, musician, and writer who can't just can't be top. Oh my god! I'm never doing that again. 